Take your Bibles and turn with me to Colossians chapter 4. That's where we're going to be in God's Word this morning. And also, you might want to turn over to Ephesians chapter 6, as we're going to be in the parallel text there as well. It's good to be away last week. I always miss you guys. Uh, we are away with my family. Uh, I have three younger sisters, and two of whom are married. And, uh, we have eight children, six and under, uh, together, all in one house. So somebody was always crying. Somebody was always crying. That was just the parents. That was just the parents. Um, it was a good time. Glad to be back with you. Colossians chapter 4, verse 1. We'll read one verse in Colossians, and then read a little bit more of an expanded version of the parallel text in Ephesians chapter 6. Hear God's word. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. In Ephesians 6, picking up in verse 5. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but instead as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Verse 9, on masters, masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. This ends the reading of God's holy and infallible word, and the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God stand forever. I want to reread Ephesians 6, verse 9, to give you a better context and draw in the, what went before it. You see, in verse 9, it says this, Masters, and then it has this phrase, Do the same to them. Now, what is the antecedent or the antecedental phrase that it's pointing back to? It's pointing back to what began, which is in verses 5 through 8, what was Paul was talking to servants, or in our genre, uh, employees. So let me reread it. Reading back in those antecedental phrase into that do the same to them phrase. Here's what it says in verse 9 with that. Masters, as bondservants of Christ. So masters are bondservants as well. Doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive from the Lord. And stop your threatening. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. The reason why I did that is to show you is that many of the principles that we looked at a couple weeks ago in regards to a redemptive and biblical view of our work applies to masters as well. That we are to be a people who serve other people, that we are to, be, um, we are to work with the motivation of pleasing God, not necessarily man, not out of people pleasing, that we are to do so looking forward to an inheritance that is ours in heaven. And we'll draw out many of those same implications this week. But what I want to look at this morning, when we hear that term masters, in our language, it would be employers or bosses. And often where many of our, our minds go would be to institution, institutional or official positions of leadership or authority. And while this passage certainly speaks to those who are uh, owners of businesses and managers and have people working under them, that is certainly true. There is, it also speaks to really anybody and everybody. And this is a text for masters about Christian leadership, whether it be in the household or in the um, workplace or in the church. What is a Christian leader? So that's what we're going this morning in looking at masters, that it's really about Christian leadership in your 
life. And so first we're going to begin here. We've got four things, primarily headings this morning. The first is this, is to look at the definition of what a Christian leader is biblically. Christian leaders are, as falls under the genre of the category in the scriptures, as um, stewardship. Now, this is not normally the thing, the word that would most often come to mind when we think of Christian leadership. When we think of the word stewardship, we most often think of what? Finances. Money. Are you a good steward of your money? But most often when the scriptures are talking about leadership and people in positions of leadership, it actually does so in the context of stewarding that role. In the parables of Jesus, he has a multiple parables where he actually talks about men who are entitled as having the position of stewards. A steward in the Greek would be is the term oikonomos, which was oikos was house, namos means law. And so a steward in the ancient Near East were these men that would be put under, that, were, that worked for the owner, and they would lead and rule over the house, the household. They were managers. So a steward, a Christian leader is a steward, and they play two roles, and it goes in two different directions. First, they're leaders of others. They oversee resources and people and finances. But at the same time, they're also slaves. In the ancient Near East, a steward would have been someone that they would have been a servant or a slave in someone's household. But they also would have been the ones who would have ruled the household. So in order to understand Christian leadership in the light of this stewardship idea, let's look briefly at both dynamics or aspects of the steward role as both a leader and and as a slave or as a servant. First is that stewards were leaders, a stewardship of leadership. On the one hand, a steward is a leader who has been given resources to rule over. And those resources can be varied in all kinds of ways. You rule over, as a master in this world, you have have mastery and ownership or leadership over many things, finances, property, and people. People in particular is what we often think about. The steward in the household was given great power, and often they were given unilateral power. The owner would leave the steward in charge. He would be gone often for years, months and years at a time. We see this in Matthew 25 where Jesus gives this parable of an owner who leaves three stewards in charge of his property and his investments and his wealth. And he leaves, which says, for a long time, for many years. And that these stewards would have unilateral control over the resources that the owner had given to them. And the call to the steward was to utilize those resources as best they could in order to glean interest for the master or for the the true owner of those resources. Now, I want to draw us out of, talking about Christian leadership, draw, draw us out of the institutional and the positional, which is where our mind often goes. You go, well, I, I don't have people who work for me, or I'm not an officer in the church, I want to draw, pull us out of those institutional ideas of what leadership is and pull us more into the general idea of being masters in this world as leaders. Genesis 1, we see that all human beings, that we have been called to be masters, managers of the world that God has put under us. Adam and Eve, in what is called the cultural mandate, in Genesis 1, after God has created them, says this, that they are to rule over all of God's creation. That God has given us as human beings this world, and we are the managers and managers uh, of it. Adam and Eve had authority to care for and develop and, and increase the garden that God had put them into. This is also, as a Christian, 
you're also a leader and a master in this world because you have been given incredible resources. That resource being primarily what? The gospel of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you who gives you spiritual gifts. This is how Paul saw his ministry. That he worked hard and he labored hard as a steward, he says, of the gospel. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'll pick up in verse 16 there. It says this. Paul says, I preach the gospel that, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. He says, I must preach the gospel because the gospel is even given to me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted, he says, with a stewardship. And then he says, what then is my reward? That in preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge. You have been given a resource that you are to give to the world. As a Christian, you've been given the Holy Spirit who has gifted you with spiritual giftings. And you've been given the good news of Jesus Christ that is to come to the world free of charge. And you are the means of proclaiming that good news. Now, some of us have been given more resources than others, haven't we? We've been given more resources to steward in this world than others, and that, that is true. We see this in Matthew 25 in Jesus' parable about the stewards, that when the owner leaves, does he give each steward the same proportion or part of his property? No, he gave one man, based on their abilities, one man five parts of his property, another man two parts, and one one part. But they all have, we have differing levels of things which God has given us. But many people, we, we got to not see ourselves as simply seeing, saying, well, do I have much or little? But looking and saying, how may I use these resources that God has given me for his glory and for his honor? And we should expand our thought in regards to the resources that God has given us. As American Christians, you've been given much. Not only do you have the Holy Spirit and the good news of Jesus Christ, but what is one of the things that we have to store it and we ought to store it very, very closely and with great value in this country? Our freedom. The reason why you should vote it's not because, well, there's perfect candidates out there, but you should vote because the freedom that you have in this country, God has given to you as a resource that you are to steward. Take care of it. Take good care of it. Many of you have been given more years on this life than others of us. In other words, you're aged. You're old. But with that comes what? Experience and wisdom and knowledge. That is a resource that God has given you, not to hoard it to yourself, not to lord it over other people, but to use it as a gift and a blessing to God's church and the people around you. Expand the, re the ways you think about your resources. Parents, your children are a resource. They're something that God has put under you to lead and to guide. You are to manage them and shape them. Employers, you have resources. The company you work for, the people who work for you. Expand the sense of understanding of what God has placed under you as a steward in this world. So a Christian leader is someone who wisely oversees the resources that have been delegated to them by God. So a steward is a leader, but he's also a slave. He's also a servant. So the steward has the authority and power over resources, but it's important to know that in this dual role as stewards, as Christian leaders in this world, we are always looking to please and honor the true owner. That all the things, the ways we utilize the resources are for his benefit. The psalmist understood this idea, that when he looks back to Adam and Eve in Psalm 8, the psalmist says that they are over all the works of the, Lord, of the Lord. But then in Psalm 24, it says that God is the owner of the earth and everything in it. You have been placed in this world as managers, but you are not the ultimate owner. God is. And so a Christian leader 
you and me must see ourselves first and foremost as a servant of God. That he is the ultimate owner of our lives and the resources that he's given us. One of the best books that I've read on Christian leadership is a book called Spiritual Leadership by a man named Oswald Chambers. And he talks about there that in the, in the scriptures what we see this term leadership is almost never used. In fact, we only see it used perhaps six times in the scriptures. But when God refers to those and speaks to those who are leaders of Israel and leaders of the church, how does he refer to them? He refers to them as his servants. Moses, God's servant. David, God's servant. Paul, a servant of God. This is how they saw themselves. This is how God saw them. And if we are stewards of God and slaves of God who answer to the true master in this world, that has two particular implications that I want to draw out for you immediately. One is this. That we cannot do whatever we want with the resources that the master and the owner has given us. As you know that God has he's given you many resources, but you don't get to do whatever you want with it. You have to live inside of the boundaries and the fence lines that he has given you in his law. Let's take your body, for instance. Did you know that your body is a resource that God has given you? Now, some of you, some of us, let me say, some of you have better resources than others of us. Chelsea laughed. The one with the broken leg right now laughed. Some of us have been given better, like we've got some good genetics. Your body's a little bit stronger. It's going to last a little better. It doesn't get sick as easier. But no matter what kind of resource your body tends to be, it is still a resource that is to be used for God's glory and for his benefits. And you don't get to do whatever you want with your body. That means God gets to ordain what you put in it, what you eat, and what you drink. He ordains what you do with it, and it has to be within the boundaries. Even your sexuality falls in line with how God has called you to be. Your body is a resource. Do you use all the resources God has given you within the lines, the boundary lines that he has given for us? We follow the instructions of the owner. The second implication is this, that if God is the owner, that we must be all about maximizing those resources for a great investment for the true owner. That all the resources that we have been given, whether it be your body or your house or your children or the position you have in your business, to use them in order to bring interest for the glory of God. This is actually what we, we, it's talked about a couple of times in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 13, Paul, or the the Hebrew writer, is, is challenging the church there to say, submit to your leaders. And he says this, submit to them because they are men who must give an account. Now that word account, what it literally means is they have to pay back to God the position that God has put them in. This is the, 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 the principle that we see in the New Testament, is that the resources that God has given you, you get to pay back to God. It is a lifelong loan of resources that you are to take and you are to use. You are to invest on God's behalf for his good and for his glory. This is the same thing. This is a big issue in Matthew 25, wasn't it? When there's three, three stewards, it talks about there in that parable. The man with five parts, the man with two parts, and the man with one part of the man's of the owner's wealth. The first two guys invest and they invest wisely. The man with one, what did he do? He buries it in the sand. And so what's the response? You think the master is, oh, oh, good, you protected the one part of my property that I had. No, he's furious because the resource that the owner has given him has not been invested for the good of the owner. God has given you resources, not simply for yourself, not simply for you to use on you or simply just to hoard her or keep safe, but to maximize for the glory of God. Let me give a summary definition of what Christian leadership is. 
by Tim Keller. I think it's a great, it couldn't do much better, so I just stole it from him. Here's what he says. A Christian leader is someone who is given responsibility over a set of resources which he or she must cultivate and nurture for the glory of God. Did you get that? A Christian leader is someone who is given responsibility over a set of resources, a position in place which he or she must cultivate and nurture for the glory of God. Is that how you see all of your resources? The car that you drive, the house that you live in, is it there for you to invest for God's kingdom? And what is the most significant and precious resource that God puts under um, our footstool at times? Is it money? Is it possessions? Those things are important in God's economy and how we use them. But most often, the thing that God loves the most, and he says his most precious resource is who? Or what? It's people. In position and place, there are various practices that when God puts you in roles and places where people are under, under you, that you have resources that other people don't have, there are practices that you're to carry out as a Christian leader. Now, you can, there are infinite amount of books on leadership, both secular and within the church, about how to take part and lead well the practices of Christian leadership. But I want to stay within the scope of our passage today and draw out two that I see here this morning from Colossians 4 and Ephesians 6. The first is this, is a practice of Christian leadership, is that we're to serve others with the resources God has given us. I go back to the rereading of Ephesians 6, verse 9. It says, They're masters as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as the Lord and not to man. Now what it's saying there is that we are to serve God. Serve God, but the means by which we serve God is by serving those around us, is serving man. This is what Peter draws out in 1 Peter 4.10. He asks the question, why have you been given spiritual gifts? And here's what he says. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. The spiritual giftings, the, the good news that God has given you, you are to use that. For, to serve others in the church. This is what he talks about in 1 Corinthians 12. Paul also talks about this in 1 Corinthians 9, which I pointed back to earlier. And when he says that I have been given the gift of the gospel, he says, I then become all things to all people. He says, I become a slave to all that I might win some for the gospel. And we are servants of others in the church, but also in a, more, in a general way with the gospel of Jesus Christ we, all, we have a resource that the world desperately needs, and we're to serve our brothers and sisters around the world by bringing that resource to bear in any way we can to their lives. True leadership must be for the benefit of followers, not simply to enrich the leader. So leadership guru John Maxwell says, how many of you get into positions of leadership and you're, you've, you've moved up the food chain of your your, your business, and you're finally in a position of power. You finally got into that office in the church, and now, now, now you can rule it over people. Now, the first thing a good leader must realize is that he is there to serve those who is under him, who is under him or her, to enrich not himself, but to enrich those who they are who they are leading. I think there's a great example in the missions world in, in Africa of this type of servant leadership that we are to have as a church the resources that God has given us. 
there was a group of young missionaries that went to uh, Uganda a number of years back, and they were bold and courageous and were excited about doing work for the Lord, and they were looking and they were praying and asking the Lord to provide them, show us ways in which we could win a, a hearing of the gospel in this culture and in this country. And they were there at a time right after Idi Amin's uh, tyrannical government um, had fallen in Uganda, and the country was in disarray because of the, the wars and his rule, the social services had essentially fallen away. And at that time in Kampala, there was, um, the trash buildup was unbelievable. It was becoming, becoming a significant sanitary health crisis uh, because there was no trash picking up because of no social services. And so these young missionaries said, to win a hearing of the gospel, let's see if we can pick up the trash. And so they went to the minister of health, and they said, can we have some of your dump trucks to go pick up trash in the city of Kampala? And they said, listen, we used to have 140 dump trucks, but they've been Shanghai, they've been used for military purposes. All we have left now are two different dump trucks, but you can have them go pick up the trash. And so they took the dump trucks, and they put on them banners about proclaiming the name of Jesus and the good news of Jesus Christ. And they went into the center of town to where the largest piles of trash were, right near the marketplaces where there was rotting fruit and vegetables and animal carcasses and all sorts of vermin. And there they served. They served. And it stunned the Ugandan people. See, what's the history of people, white people in particular, in their resources and coming into Africa? Have we gone to Africa as a people not to be served but to serve? No, actually for hundreds of years we went to Africa and what did we do? We actually went to find ourselves some slaves to draw them back to our country. And then even when that wasn't okay anymore, we engaged in colonialism where we went to sap the resources of those countries for the good of our own countries. And then even when we got a hold of this idea of being missional in those countries, so often, and missiologists affirm this, that what missionaries consistently did in the 20th century is we went and we espoused Western civilization instead of Jesus Christ. And so, have they seen people with resources coming from other countries coming to serve them? No, no. So often what they had seen was people coming to serve themselves on that land. And the people of Uganda were amazed and they were stunned. They were like, oh my goodness, the Mazunga, the white people are picking up trash. They're serving us. And they began to see reporters and people coming out and wondering what in the world is going on with these missionaries. Why would they do this? And they asked one of the young Ugandans who had begun to work with the missionaries, and they said, are you a new political party? And here's his response was this, yes. I said, what's the name of your political party? And he said, we are called the Kingdom of God. The Kingdom of God, because our King has given us resources, not to hoard them for ourselves, but to serve others. In God's economy, in God's economy, he has given you everything that you have in order to serve the world. So first, serve others in your leadership roles. Second, what's the other thing that it says in Colossians and Ephesians? It says this, that we're to seek justice with the resources that we have. We're to serve others, and we're to seek justice. Seminary professor tells a story. One of his students, who was a young man named Mark, one day were near the time when Mark was going to graduate, they were in, in one of the rooms at the seminary, and the seminary professor was asking the student what he was going to do afterwards, and he said, I am going to go live in a place called uh, Sandtown, which is in one of the worst ghettos in, in Baltimore. And the seminary professor was rather stunned by this, that he would go live in such a, a difficult place to do ministry. And he asked him, why would you do this? And the seminary student said this, Mark said this, to do justice. To 
do justice, to take the resources that I have been given to go and do justice. You see, it had been many years since anybody had entered into that place to provide resources and good. In fact, he said for, in, in, in a newspaper report on this young missionary to this ghetto in Baltimore, he said for the first couple of years, the police thought he was a drug dealer and the people of the, of the community thought he was an undercover policeman. But eventually he won a hearing and began to do work, not only establishing and planting a church, began to do deed ministry in that community so that the community slowly transformed. Henry Dent's son-in-law, Stephen Pittman are in Augusta doing hope for Augusta. This is exactly what they're trying to do. To do justice in a place where years and years ago all the resources is white flight, we moved out. And so they're going back in to replenish these places that have been fallen on hard times. Do justice. Micah 6.8 says this, Has he told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you? This is what your owner requires of you. What? To do justice, to love kindness, kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Ephesians 6, 9, Colossians 4, 1 says, we are to, Masters are to treat those who work for them or those who are under them with justice and fairness. And in Ephesians 6, verse 9, it says that we are to engage with others with no partiality. He says there's no partiality with God. This refers to the fact that we have a God of justice. That no matter whether you're rich or poor, whether whether the color of your skin, whether your socioeconomic status, that you are seen equally in God's eyes. And it goes, Ephesians 6, 9 goes further and helps us understand what unjust power looks like. It looks like one who threatens them, those under them. Now this doesn't mean that if you're a boss, you can't hold people who, um, who answer to you accountable. What's going on here in regards to this word threatening is the ability to use the weight of your resources and your power to coerce and abuse those underneath you. So we do need people who pursue and seek out doing justice. The cause to justice is not new, though, is it? See, Paul, when he's writing in Colossians and in Ephesians, when he's writing about what it looks like to serve a sovereign God, a supreme Lord who's beginning to take hold of our lives, he doesn't simply grab these things out of thin air. See, Paul is pointing back to and rereading and rethinking about the Old Testament in light of the gospel. And one of the great themes in the Old Testament is this. It's justice. That God is a God of justice. It's the word Hebrew word mishpat. It's used over 200 times in the Old Testament. And its basic meaning means this. That you would treat people equitably. It means equity. That means those, whether you're rich or you're poor, that in a justice system, you are treated equally. No matter the resources that they have. It means that if you're to be using your resources in order to pursue justice, not to squish people with your resources. And if you think this is not a problem in our country today, go talk to those small companies that get crushed by larger companies in legal suits. How do they do it? They put them in a court of law and they they charge them court fee after court fee after court fee after court fee until those who have less resources can no longer fight. They crush them. They use their resources to bless the community around them. No, they use it to crush competition. This is the kind of structural injustice that, that Jesus talks about and that even the Old Testament talks about over and over again. The Mishpah doesn't simply mean that people are to be punished in the right way, in an equitable way, but also that the resources of the country are to be distributed equitably, that you are to care for people equitably, to protect them equitably, no matter where they are, what their socioeconomic status is. You need to read the Old Testament. 
It is not simply an individualistic document. It is a place where we see the civil laws of Israel loves the broken and the impoverished and seeks justice for them. And his study of the Old Testament led Tim Keller to write the book Generous Justice. And he finds there, he says this in that book, that since there is an inequitable distribution of both goods and opportunities in this world, that this means that if you have been someone who has been assigned a significant portion of those goods of this world, that you are recalled by God to share them. And if you don't share them, you're not simply being stingy, you're being unjust. This is connected and very similar to what we looked at a couple weeks ago when we, call, when we looked at the passage in which the man who is a thief and someone who steals, that the call to him that he is no longer a thief simply when he stops stealing and gets a job. But the call, the, the opposite of thievery is to stop stealing, get a job, and then have something to give away. In the same way that you are not seeking and pursuing justice as a Christian unless you are taking the resources that God has given you and you are using them for the good of other people in your community. Use them for just purposes. Let me flesh this out just a little bit more. The scriptures take a balanced view on poverty and what causes poverty. In the in these scriptures, what we see is we see both the individual is emphasized, that there are those who are impoverished in this world because they have lacked wisdom, because they have done foolish things, because they have done they are not they are being cursed by God for their unethical behavior. And so, yes, they are impoverished and they are held responsible. But at the same time, we also see that God in the Bible has this tendency to slice right through our political leanings one way or the other, whether it be liberal or conservative, and he cuts right through the center and says it's not simply individual, but we also see that he calls those of wealth and power that they are to take those things up to pursue systems of justice, structures that are good for all peoples. If you don't believe me, you need to go read the Minor Prophets. In fact, we see one of the reasons for poverty in the Old Testament is oppression. And here are some of the examples given of what oppression looks like in the Old Testament. It includes a judicial system weighted in favor of the powerful and the rich. It talks about this in Leviticus 19. You can go look it up. Our loans, where excessive interest is charged, go look that up in Exodus 22. Or unjustly low wages. You can see that in Jeremiah 22. I'm not kidding. Go look these things up. James 5 talks about this. On numerous occasions, it says this in the scriptures, that those who have been given more resources are going to be held to a stricter standard, and in fact, God seems to hold them more responsible than those who are actually living in poverty. More responsible, those who have the great wealth in a society, for the injustice in their worlds. Is this you? you think of your resources this way? Are you pursuing justice in Carrollton, in our country? Or is your attitude... It's all mine. Don't you dare take it from me. We are called to be masters in this world because we have been given so much. But the owner has said it's not just for you. It's for you to use for the good of other people. So why do we struggle with this so much? What's going on in our heart of hearts that we are people who have been blessed so significantly and so often, though, our leadership roles, the resources that we've been given, that we use them either for selfish reasons or we, we deny, the, we just don't use the resources at all. And those are the two failings. The two failings that we often will fall into in light of this text of this is that we will take God's resources and instead of serving other people with them, we will simply serve ourselves. Ken Blanchard, who is a leadership uh, guru, says this, too many leaders act as if the sheep, their people, are there for the benefit of the shepherd, not that the shepherd has the responsibility for the sheep. I can attest to that as a pastor. 
Now, one of the great problems that so many pastors have is that we see simply you as those who come to the church as mere the resource to give us glory. That's not seeing ourselves as servants, it's seeing ourselves as being put in a position of leadership to serve you, but it's simply to serve ourselves. Why do we act like that? Why? Well, the, other, the other failing is this, is that when God gives us resources, it bequeaths upon us resources, we simply fail to take up the leadership role that he's given us. We simply don't use the resources. This is the issue going on in Matthew 25, isn't it? When the one steward who, who doesn't use the resources that his owner has given him, he simply denies leadership, denies that role that God has given him. What's going on there? Why? Why do we run away from these leadership roles? Why don't we say, man, I, I don't want that responsibility? Because leadership is hard, isn't it? When you're a leader, what happens? When people follow you, what do they do? They point to you. And that often means really good things, but more often than not, that means they're blaming you and they're criticizing you for the failures in the family, in the organization, and in their lives. Leadership is painful. Leadership is difficult. Parents, you've experienced this, right? God's giving you the resources, leading your children. Christian leadership in your household is an incredible, great, weighty matter. And yet, do they follow with a great attitude most of the time? Absolutely not. My kids are always up in arms over my leadership. Yesterday, my wife wasn't feeling good, and so I got up, and I was making the kids breakfast. And all three of them, I mean, yelling at me about what I had provided for breakfast. And I I went into the room, I shut the door, I pulled the covers over my head, and my wife goes, what are you doing? And I said, I'm hiding from the children. And this is what we want to do as leaders, that we run away from the calling that God has given us. He has given you resources, houses, your house that you use for hospitality, and yet we run away from that. What if my house isn't clean enough? What if they judge me? God has given you a good job. He's given you employees underneath you. Are you going to lead them well? So often we fail to take up leadership. And why? Why? They're the heart of both why we are selfish with our resources and why we fail even to use them for the good of other people is because we're afraid. The reality is this, is we're enslaved. We're called to be masters in this world, and yet we're enslaved. What are we enslaved to? We're enslaved to people-pleasing, as it talks about in this text. That's why you don't take up leadership, because you're afraid of people being discontented with you and uh, approving of you and accepting you. You're afraid of failure and the fact that you might be condemned or found yourself wanting. You're afraid of death or loss. That's why you're stingy with your stuff. That God forbid I should lose these things. Some of you are wealthy beyond imagination because you're so afraid. You you have stored up things for years and years and years because you're afraid that, oh my goodness, what if I don't have enough resources when I'm 75 years old? Listen, be wise, but give away. The reason why we do so many of our things is because we're afraid. We hold on to the resources that we've been given because we act act like we have these these few crumbs in this world. And if we share them, they're going to just go away. We fear losing acceptance and approval. In fact, we fear losing God's approval too, don't we? In fact, what is the most obsessive, the most abusive leaderships, leadership leaders in the world? Aren't, isn't this their issue? The most abusive leadership leaders in the world, this is their problem, is that they're insecure. An insecure leader is the one who threatens, the one who misuses those who are under, under them. Isn't this what Stalin did? You know, Stalin, late in his life, what did he do? He had to sleep in a new room every night. He's an extremely powerful man. He was extremely an insecure man. 
most passive coward leaders are ones who are dominated by fear, those who fail to take up the things that God has called them to do. Men, men who fail to lead their families because you're afraid of your wife's critique. Because you're afraid. You're afraid. The fear of failure and the fear of losing what we already have will make you either a tyrannical loser, a leader or a timid leader. So how do we become a Christian leader? How do you become created as a Christian leader? First, you've got to be set free from enslavement. Set free from the enslavement of fear, but how, do you, how does that happen? It's interesting. It's kind of a little bit of a wordplay that's going on here. And in order to be set free from your enslavement to fear, you must become a slave. you just got to change who your master is. You've got to become a, a slave to the master that is Jesus Christ. Here's the gospel in this account. It's this. That you are called to be a steward, but there is one who is a perfect steward. Did you know that Jesus plays the same role? That Jesus comes and he takes on the role of a servant, coming to serve us and serve his master, God the Father. But he also comes as king. He's playing both roles. He's playing steward in this world. That he's king and lord, but he's also servant to God the Father and servant to us. What does it say in Mark chapter 10? Why did Jesus come? And this great passage in calling us to serve, here's what it says. And Jesus called them to his disciples and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve into what? To give his life as a ransom. He's the perfect steward. John 13, what happens in John 13? Jesus is surrounded by his disciples and he says, we all have dirty feet. Who's going to serve us? There were no takers. So Jesus gets down, takes up the basin and the towel, and he washes feet. He serves. He seeks justice. How does Jesus seek justice in this world? He cares for the broken, the unhealthy, the impoverished. But ultimately, what does he do? He gives up the riches of heaven. To come take the wrath that you and I deserved so that you might have the riches of heaven. He's a God who seeks justice. He's the perfect steward. See, do you see this? That when you look to Jesus as the perfect steward, the master of your life, the one who serves his heavenly father, but also so graciously served you, who has given the greatest example of Christian leadership, but it's not simply an example, because when you embrace what he's done for you, it sets you free from all the things that enslave you. It sets you free from all the things that you fear. See, if you, if you embrace Jesus as your master, what kind, do you think he's a gracious, kind master? That when you fail, he berates you? No. You see, Jesus empowers us to take, take up the resources that he's given us and to use them to take risks for God's kingdom, to do something risky for, for the things that, to risk much for God's kingdom in this world, to possibly, to possibly fail in ministry. Why? What, well, how is he empowered to do that? By being the perfect leader that says, listen, you are such a failure, but I forgive you and I love you anyways. That you risked much. Some of you are simply hoarding the resources that you have. You're enslaved to the things of this world. You have to control people and control the riches that you have because you're afraid that they may be taken from you. What does Jesus say? He says, look to the inheritance that I've given you in heaven. One final thing to point out in John 13. is what we have to root ourselves in. is the same thing that Jesus rooted himself in when he went to serve. As Jesus is about to stoop down and take up the basin and the towel, it says this in verse 3 and 4 of John 13. Jesus, three things he points out, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, 
Second, that he had come from God. And third, that he was going back to God. Did what? Removed his clothes, took up a basin and a towel, and served. In order to be a person of service, a true Christian leader in this world, you have to know those three things. You have to know that God has given you all things. You have to know who you are and where you are going. And to the degree that you understand those things, you will be a master in this world by being the servant of all. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open up our eyes to the ways in which you have called each of us to be a Christian leader. The biblical paradigm of what a Christian leader is. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that the room, men and women in this room would be great by being nothing. Would see all the resources that they have been given as being the means of investment for your kingdom. Lord, I pray that you give us the skill to do these things, the heart to, to serve and to seek justice. Lord, I pray that you set us free. Set us free from our fear of failure. Set us free from our fear that we would lose what we have, that we would simply set our eyes on Jesus and all that he accomplished for us, and that would empower us to live out the gospel for the world and indeed lead the gospel towards what they truly need, which is you, Christ. May we pray this in the name of Jesus.